and I retired to bed for a week to read them. <laughs> they gave me a sort of cosmic flu. And uh, for three months, I read those books and filled two notebooks complete. And they transformed my life. And as fate would have it, Kathleen then invited me to go and see her. And we have been close ever since. I think um, all I can say is that Blake helped me to understand my other great mentor, who is Dante. And he also introduced me to the English tradition. And he also re-emphasized Dante's great vision of the city, this organization or lack of it that we're all involved with as we go on our separate ways. And I know Kathleen's talk to us this evening will go to the very heart of what the what is the city and what are the energies that vibrate through its streets. Kathleen, I won't speak any more. We're all eager to hear your words. Thank you, John. It's wonderful to see so many old and new friends in this room tonight. I think most of you know all I have to say about Blake, really, but uh, he is not in the academic sense, my subject, but my master. And that, I think, is the difference between learning at the Temenos Academy and learning in most of the modern universities of this present time. We learn not about, but from the great ones and their works, uh, from the imagination and not from the... um, academic standpoint which detaches the mind from the thing which is studying which is altogether wrong this uh, paper in fact I'm giving for the second time I wrote it originally uh, at the the request of His Royal Highness for his students and uh, only one of them has been allowed to creep in and sit on the floor this evening, I see, that uh, they have heard this lecture before, but uh, Stephen and Genevieve said that I should perhaps give it to uh, as a Temenos lecture, and I'm very happy to see that so many people love Blake enough to come and hear this paper. I wish I had Dr. Gandhi's eloquence to speak without notes, or I wish I had Karen Singh's bottomless memory for poetry. But unfortunately, I am only a scribe. I can think only with a pen in my hand. And th- therefore, I have, uh, can only write my words. And I shall read at this lecture and even the poems of Blake, which I shall quote in it. And... The subject is William Blake's Fourfold London. And William Blake is, of course, England's supreme poet of the city. 
Blake was born in London in the year 1757, before the Industrial Revolution, and died in 1827, having lived his whole life, apart from three years in a cottage at Felpham on the Sussex coast, in the city, to whose inhabitants he addressed his great prophetic books. The last of these, Jerusalem, bears the name of the holy city of the book of Revelation, the city coming down from heaven, which it is the human task to embody on earth. Blake's Jerusalem is the city of the imagination, the work of the golden builders who labor to create on earth a city in the likeness of the invisible world within, for the kingdom of heaven is within. The outer world, unilluminated by the imaginative vision, Blake calls Babylon, biblical symbol of the city of exile, where the Jews lived far from the Holy Land. Jerusalem is the kingdom of the human imagination, which Blake, following his master, Swedenborg, calls the divine humanity, who is in all. The city, of our hu- the city is our human kingdom, our human collective task, never completed, ever building, ever decaying, desolate, in Blake's words. It is for every generation to keep that city in repair, to add to it new works for the soul to inhabit as we inhabit the entire human past. These works embody our deepest knowledge and sublimest visions and in turn serve to awaken their inhabitants to know ourselves as participants in that invisible kingdom we ever seek to embody. For Blake there, the city is above all its people, has a collective life of the many in one and one in many who inhabit and create it over the generations and its own especial character. He wrote of the cities of England, Verulam, Canterbury, venerable parent of men, generous immortal guardian, golden clad. For cities are men, fathers of multitudes, and rivers and mountains are also men. Everything is human, mighty, sublime. The giant Albion, that is the English nation, reposes among his 28 cities, and Blake names Edinburgh clothed with fortitude, York, Selsey, Chichester, Oxford with its healing leaves, Bath, Durham, Lincoln, Carlisle, Ely, Norwich, Peterborough, each with its own character. But Jerusalem is not to be found at any one time or place, but is universal, created wherever humankind is at work. And there are cities not yet embodied in time and space's womb to spring up for Jerusalem. He names America, where there will be planted the seeds of cities and villages in the human bosom. It was in this sense that Blake's desire was to see England become a holy land, embodying the heavenly archetype. The human story begins in the garden, nature, and ends in the creation of the human kingdom, the city, 
The city is not only its buildings, it is a great energy of creation at work. It comprises not architecture alone, but painting, music and poetry, schools and universities, works of science, all expressions in things great and small which embody our inner and create our outer worlds. In antiquity, cities, Albion, Athens, Jerusalem, Florence, Spencer's London, Queen of Cities All, were loved and valued by their inhabitants, and banishment was deemed the worst of punishments. Inner city areas had not become a name designating human problems of neglect and desolation. What disaster has befallen us that our cities have become places of alienation and exile? Blake's poem, London, describes not buildings but people, and already he saw London suffering from a deadly sickness. His words, written at the end of the 18th century, are no less true today. I wander through each chartered street near where the chartered Thames does flow and see in every face I meet marks of weakness, marks of woe. The poem continues with an indictment of war, child labor, the indifference of both church and state to human suffering and the self-righteous respectability blasted by the youthful harlot's curse. The streets and the river itself are chartered. They are property. Blake was bitter in his protest against those commercial values which already dominated the public domain. Commerce is so far from being beneficial to the arts or to empires that it is destructive to both, as all their history shows. (coughs) Empires flourish until they become commercial, and then they are scattered abroad to the four winds. It is the arts, works of the imagination, that build great civilizations. Let it no more be said that empires encourage arts, for it is the arts that encourage empires. Arts and artists are spiritual and laugh at mortal contingencies. It is not arts that follow and attend upon empire, but empire that attends and follows the arts. Blake lamented the absence of such enlightened patronage as the papacy and the Medici, who set the artists to build and adorn the cities of Italy. He would, for he was a patriot of the imagination, have liked to make England what Italy is, an envied storehouse of intellectual riches. Instead, the dark satanic mills of the industrial landscape were already coming into being as the outer reflection of a materialist ideology which was to prevail during the next century and beyond. A century after Blake, that other poet of London, T.S. Eliot, saw the city as a wasteland and described its people as in a Dantesque hell. A crowd flowed over London Bridge, so many I had not thought death had undone so many. 
sighs short and infrequent were exhaled, and each man fixed his eyes before his feet, flowed up the hill and down King William Street to where St. Mary Woolnorth kept the hours with a dead sound on the final line. Elliot's is not a hell of material poverty, but of spiritual alienation. He saw in its outcome what Blake had seen in its causes. Blake's London is what Henri Corbin, the great French Ismaeli scholar, has called an emblematic city. By this he means that the outer forms, buildings, districts, and regions are correspondences of inner realities, experiences, visions. It was Corbin who coined the word imaginal, imaginal, as distinct from the imaginary to designate realities of the world of the imagination, which, far from being imaginary in the popular sense of the word, unreal, non-existent, are realities of mind. The outer forms mediate, open to us in symbolic language, be these paintings, sculptures, music or architecture, regions of our inner worlds. An emblematic city, in Corbin's understanding, is a great mediating symbol, at once an embodiment of an imaginative vision and empowered to awaken that vision, that perception of invisible values and meanings in the minds of its inhabitants. In a paper on emblematic cities, which we published, in fact, in, uh, in Temenos, written to accompany a collection of photographs of Isfahan by the French photographer Henri Stierlin, Corbin writes of Athens, as understood by Plato in the Parmenides, it is the Panathenaia, festival of the triumph of the goddess of wisdom over the giants, symbolizing chaos and ignorance that, I quote, brings the philosophers together in a place which no longer belongs to the topography of the world. Athens is an emblematic city. So in the Middle Ages was the city of Compostela, famous place of pilgrimage, Nicholas Flamel, the alchemist, received enlightenment uh, after a pilgrimage to Compostela, of which Corbin writes, The alchemist's work consists in making apparent what is hidden, a bringing to light which occurs in the first place within the alchemist himself. Such is the preparation demanded for the transmutation of common mercury into physiosophical mercury. And it is at Compostela that the transformation takes place, but a city of Compostela which is no longer situated in the land of Spain, but in that hidden land which is the innermost being of the alchemist philosopher. Compostela is an emblematic city. Corbin then goes on to Blake's London as a city where we discover the spirit, the hidden significance of which a body or a building is only one typification. And again I quote, 
And this is why in the poems of William Blake, amid the jumble of unknown worlds, the turmoil of skies and heavenly beings with strange names, the reader suddenly comes upon places whose names are familiar, unexpectedly inserted into the mystic worlds. For beneath the appearances of day-to-day London, William Blake discerns a London more real than the London visible to bodily eyes, for which it is accountable. In the buildings, mosques and dwellings and palaces of Isfahan, Corbal sees one of the architectural wonders of the world. He sees as our task the deciphering of the message left us by the builders of Isfahan, a rendezvous at which the mere historical tourist will never arrive, since that message is metaphysical. Blake's London is not like Isfahan or like our own Gothic cathedrals, a message of wisdom left for us to decipher, but rather a work in progress. I behold London, a human, awful wonder of God. He says, return, Albion, return. I give myself for thee. My streets are my ideas of imagination. My houses are thoughts. My inhabitants, affections, the children of my thoughts, waking, walking within my blood vessels. So spoke London, immortal guardian. And Blake leaves us in no doubt that his visions are embodied in times and places. For the message ends, I heard in Lambeth's shade, in Feltham I saw and heard visions of Albion. I write in South Moulton Street what I both see and hear in regions of humanity in London's opening streets. The heavenly Jerusalem can never in the nature of time and change be fully realized, yet she has her secret chambers in the houses of London's inhabitants, her golden builders, and among those Blake's own home in Lambeth, where he and his young wife Catherine lived in the early years of their married life, and where a vine grew unpruned in their small garden. There, Blake's earliest prophetic books were written. We builded Jerusalem as a city and a temple. From Lambeth we began our foundations. Lovely Lambeth, lovely hills of Camberwell. (laughs) Perhaps no longer. As Blake listened to the voices of London, he heard much that was terrible. Young men conscripted as cannon fodder for the Napoleonic Wars, the chimney sweepers cry, the industrial enslavement of women and children, all the sufferings and injustices of a society from which Jerusalem the soul is banished, cast forth upon the wilds of Poplar and Bow to Malden and Canterbury in the delights of cruelty, the shuttles of death sing in the sky to Islington and Pancras run Meriburn to Tyburn's river. Tyburn's deathful shades, where boys were hanged for minor offences against property. In the streets of London, not Jerusalem, but Babylon reigned supreme. 
I behold Babylon in the opening streets of London. I behold Jerusalem in ruins wandering about from house to house. This I behold, the shuttles of death attend my steps. Would he have found it otherwise now? But Blake was no utopian idealist nor political campaigner. The foundations of the city are not within the domain of politicians and institutions, but within ourselves, and it is there that the labors of building Jerusalem must begin. What are those golden builders doing? Where was the burying place of soft Ethinthus, near Tyburn's fatal tree? Is that mild Zion's hill's most ancient promontory, near mournful, ever-weeping Paddington? Is that Calvary and Golgotha becoming a building of pity and compassion? Lo, the stones are pity, and the bricks well-wrought affections, enameled with love and kindness, and the tiles engraven gold, labor of merciful hands. The beams and rafters of forgiveness, the mortar and cement of the work, tears of honesty, the nails and screws and iron braces are well-wrought blandishments and well-contrived words, firm fixing, never forgotten, always comforting the remembrance. The floors, humility, the ceilings, devotion, the hearth, thanksgiving, Prepare the furniture, O Lambeth, in thy pitying looms, the curtains, woven tears and sighs, wrought into lovely forms for comfort. There the secret furniture of Jerusalem's chamber is wrought. Lambeth, the bride, the lamb's wife, loveth thee. Thou art one with her, and nurse not of self in thy supreme joy. Go on, builders in hope, though Jerusalem wanders far away without the gate of loss among the dark satanic mills. Blake's city of the imagination, the city within, of which the material city is an image and expression, he called Golganusa, from Golgos, the skull, for it is to be found in the human brain, in the mind, its reality is mental and living, human, not a dead world of matter, but a living world of imagined forms. Excuse me. And Blake echoes Shakespeare's line in a Midsummer Night's Dream on the nature of imagination. Remember, the poet's eye in a fine frenzy rolling doth glance from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven, and as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them into shapes and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. We acted Midsummer Night's Dream at school when we were in the fifth form. Perhaps some of you also know these lines, which are marvellous, of course, on the nature of imagination. And Blake writes of the builders of Gorgonusa, 
some sounds of loss loss is the is the the spirit of vision he is the visionary one of the four zeros surround the passions with porches of iron and silver creating forms of beauty and beauty around the dark regions of sorrow giving to airy nothing a name and a habitation delightful with bonds to the infinite putting off the indefinite into most holy forms of thought such is the power of inspiration they labor incessant with many tears and afflictions creating a beautiful house for the piteous sufferer gorgonuza is built continually amid the furnaces and anvils of the creative genius realizing in london corbin's emblematic city here on the banks of thames loss builded gorgonuza in fears he builded it in rage and fury It is the spiritual fourfold London continually building and continually decaying desolate in eternal labors loud the furnaces and loud the anvils Blake city of Gorgonusa is fourfold fourfold because man is fourfold a truth that since blake addressed his prophetic words to his uncomprehending contemporaries cg jung has made familiar to us as a psychological fact man's nature is fourfold inhabiting the four distinct regions of the senses of feeling of reason, reason and of vision Blake's four living creatures the four zeros whose characters and worlds conflicts and <laughs> ultimate reconciliation within the divine humanity form the dramatic themes of the prophetic books correspond in all respects to Jung's perception of the archetypal structure of the psyche with its four functions In the city of the imagination each of these must find expression and play its part and receive its sustenance within the city reason and feeling the living senses and the imaginative vision Blake insists on this fourfold structure of Gorgonusa and every inhabitant is fourfold and every pot and vessel and garment and utensils of the houses and every garment fourfold Blake dev- uh, devotes many pages to descriptions of the city of Gorgonusa its diagrammatic fourfold archetypal structure in the form of a mandala a mental diagram Jung found to be inherent in the structure of the psyche and compared to the similar spiritual diagrams familiar in Tibetan and Indian symbolic art imagination builds the universe within the sacred enclosure the temenos of the city of golgonusa outside that city is the lifeless mechanistic world of what blake describes as single vision and newton's sleep and the dark satanic wheels of a universe lacking the vertical dimension of humankind's inner and higher invisible worlds a lifeless world in which only the quantifiable is deemed real 
For Blake, all the four regions of the imagination are living worlds. The material world itself is alive and every particle of dust breathes forth its joy. Blake saw the scientific materialism, which has to become the dominant ideology of the 19th century, as a hell cut off from life. Plato wrote of humankind unilluminated by a vision of the real as prisoners living in a cave where they could see only shadows cast on the wall of the cave which they took to be reality. Blake takes up Plato's theme in describing the hills which lie outside the city of imagination. Around Golganusa lies the land of death eternal, a land of pain and misery and despair and ever-brooding melancholy. There is the cave, the rock, the tree, the lake of Udan Eden, the forest and the marsh and the pits of bitumen deadly, the rocks of solid fire, the valleys, the plains of burning sand, the rivers, cataracts and lakes of fire, the islands of the fiery lakes, the trees of malice, revenge and black anxiety. These are the hells of those cut off from the divine vision which inspires continually the laborers of Golganusa. Repeatedly, Blake returns to the theme of Albion's loss of the divine vision. Refusing to behold the divine image which all behold and live thereby, he is sunk down into a deadly sleep. The divine image, the divine humanity, that, as Blake calls Jesus, the imagination, that is the human archetype written in every human soul, the true self. The divine image is Blake's Jesus, the imagination. This presence is in all. It is the true humanity, which in Blake's telling of the story of the fall, we fall short of through forgetfulness. Sleep is Blake's term, borrowed from Plotinus, who likewise sees that loss as sleep, or as we would say in modern terms, a fall into unconsciousness. The poet, whose type for Blake is Milton, is called the Awakener because poetry, and indeed all the arts, serve to remind and awaken the oblivious sleeper of the higher world, the divine archetype. Whereas in Eastern civilizations, meditation and yoga of various modes are ways to reach fuller consciousness, for Blake it is the arts that serve to remind and awaken. Poetry, painting and music, the three powers in man of conversing with paradise, which the flood did not sleep away, the flood of time and space, as he elsewhere calls it. And elsewhere he also includes, I'm glad to say, architecture in the, in the arts uh, which enable man to converse with paradise. The city of Gorgonusa, therefore, exists in time and is the labor of men and women to realize the holy city on earth as it is in heaven, to build the outer city in the image of the inner city, or in the words of the Irish mystic A.E., to make the politics of time conform to the politics of eternity. 
Such was Plato's theme, such was Augustine's, and as with all sacred cities of whatever religious traditions. Corbin speaks of Isfahan as a city whose message is left for us to decipher. He implies, as indeed he well knew, that Isfahan and other of the wonderful buildings of Islamic culture were communications of knowledge, a total knowledge of our humanity, built with understanding of mathematical principles, buildings that satisfy mind and senses alike, whose adornments of ceramics decorated with flowers and flowing calligraphy satisfy the heart's desire for beauty, and whose subtle use of images reflected in water, light refracted from gleaming surfaces, awaken understanding of spiritual realities, as do our Gothic cathedrals, embodying as they do the whole Christian doctrine in sculptured depictions of Christ and his disciples, which communicate human nobility and dignity and the gentleness of the Virgin Mary and her child. And not in sculpture alone, but in the inner spaces created by the architects who define inner regions and higher regions where our thoughts can rest in sanctuary or ascend into mystery of rising arches. The art of stained glass transforms the light of common day into the light of vision. The geometric forms of rose window communicate knowledge at once of the visible and the invisible cosmos. Values and meanings of soul and spirit are given unaging forms and language in terms of a coherent and total spiritual cosmology. So with the temples of India, the stupas of the Far East. It is remarkable how the stupa recently built by the river in Battersea Park has wordlessly imposed a kind of reverential behavior on strollers in the park. Little offerings of flowers are always to be seen and surely not all left there by Asiatics in exile. It speaks its message of peace and its builders, Japanese Buddhist monks, as its builders, Japanese Buddhist monks, intended. What is communicated by our commercial cities, our high-rise buildings, our airports and motorways. Power and knowledge of a kind, certainly. Material power and material knowledge, but not the fourfold knowledge which embodies the four regions of our humanity in the unity of wholeness. Not for nothing is New York City known as Babylon. It's wonderful, of course, the sun setting at the end of those great avenues with their streaming cars with red and green and yellow lights or the lit-up towers at night reflected in the East River. But those tall buildings are also trivial, meaningless, some ridiculous fancy placed on their pinnacles. Our cities may proclaim a triumph of material knowledge, but to the soul they tell nothing. Even, perhaps, they proclaim not the divine humanity, but that we are negligible and unloved, or tell of some abstract universe not belonging to us at all. Or is New York City also a human, awful wonder of God? But what message does it convey to its inhabitants? 
modern man in search of a soul. It is not for me to say. I love it, of course. It is one of the wonders of the world. But I grew up in the heyday of the modern movement whose architects and town planners were nothing if not idealistic. In their utopian idealism, they set out to improve social conditions, to provide housing for the workers with every amenity and convenience technology could provide. No one can deny that they are responsible for many excellent things. Le Corbusier, the architectural genius of that movement, in the belief that he knew what humankind needed, built his famous workers' flats in Marseille and even had a plan to replace the beloved Paris we know with a new and better city designed by himself. Yet... I remember Herbert Reed, himself spoken in this, spokesman in this country for the modern movement, saying that it was a strange fact that although everyone admired Corbusier's buildings, people didn't want to live in them. <laughs> what was missing, of course, in the modern movement, essentially an atheist materialist ideology with leanings towards Marxism, was those invisible dimensions the soul inhabits. The works of that movement, though some reflect the cosmic proportions, are not fourfold. These architects and planners were aware of material needs, but not those of the soul. For few believed in the soul as a universe distinct from the natural body, or in spirit as the ground of reality at all levels. In those well-planned housing estates, Jerusalem, the soul, remains in exile. Maxwell Fry himself said that beauty was not a luxury but a necessity. But a materialist ideology, lacking the divine image that all behold and live thereby, can create only an image of an image. The living inner source of beauty remains hidden. When I was a student at Cambridge and we were all, like every generation, eager to scan the scene of the brave new world before us, we were supposed to admire Battersea Power, Battersea Power Station as a monumental expression of the socialist work ideal. Well designed as Giles Gilbert Scott's building may be to serve its function, and functional is the fashionable word of the day, it is not a fourfold building. Heart and soul remain uh, excluded. Uh, uh, I can't read that word. <laughs> they, they are not on those four chimneys proclaiming the, the might of collective man. We do not find heart and soul satisfied by that statement. And now it is not even functional. Nobody what, knows what to do with it. Charmed as we may be by a modern railway station or some spectacular airport, unless the meanings and values our cities embody are adequate to our humanity in its full dignity, the city will remain a place of exile to the souls of its inhabitants. Communism in those days seemed the epitome of social justice and would create a better world of equality, peace and cooperation, whereas religion, the opium of the people, would soon be a thing of the past. I have lived to see that the outcome was far otherwise. 
For it is said that man shall not live by bread alone, and the utopian empire collapsed from within. What will happen to our Western materialist empires remains to be seen, or perhaps we can already see. Blake's phrase, the dark satanic mills, seems to describe perfectly a whole epoch of industrial cities, but it is well to remember that Blake did not use that phrase to describe an industrial landscape, but to describe the Newtonian universe, conceived as a mechanism of natural cause and effect, an ideology which was, to Blake's prophetic understanding, a false ideology in its denial of the immeasurable worlds of soul and spirit, and indeed of nature itself, as a living world and not a mechanism. That mechanistic ideology found its expression indeed in those industrial cities built in the likeness of that ideology, and the phrase those dark satanic mills has become current as a recognizable description of a landscape built in the likeness of an ideology. Do we not always live in the cities we deserve? Yes, you may say, but surely we must consider material needs first. Certainly the architects of the modern movement and utopian socialism cannot be faulted in this respect. But can these needs in all the regions of the fourfold human universe be separated? Who does not know those anonymous building estates where the eye looks in vain for something of beauty on which to rest? We wander the streets... An image Blake often uses in writing of Jerusalem's lot in the streets of Babylon, but soul never finds its home. After a country childhood, I spent my school years in Ilford, a dormitory suburb where the standard of living was more than adequate, but always with the sense of inconsolable exile. I remember nothing beautiful there except for trees and little flower gardens in front of the houses and a grotto and a wishing well in Valentine's Park. Can material and spiritual needs be separated? Blake wrote with passion against social injustices and cruelties, but above all, he indicted the Industrial Revolution because it was soul-destroying, because Albion's machines are woven with his life and all the arts of life. They changed into the arts of death in Albion. The hourglass, contemned because its simple workmanship was like the workmanship of the plowman, and the water wheel that raises water into cisterns, broken and burned with fire because its workmanship was like the workmanship of the shepherd. And in their stead, intricate wheels invented wheel without wheel to perplex youth in their outgoings and to bind to labors in Albion of day and night the myriads of eternity that they may grind and polish brass and iron hour after hour laborious task kept ignorant of its use that they might spend the days of wisdom in sorrowful drudgery to obtain a scanty pittance of bread in ignorance to view a small portion and think it all and call it demonstration blind to all the simple rules of life 
But is not beauty something only the rich and privileged can afford? Here there is an all-important difference between material wealth and the treasures of the imagination, a difference not in degree but in kind. In the material world, goods and resources are limited so that if one receives more, another receives less. If a sum of money or a piece of land is shared among a hundred people, each will receive a hundredth part. Equal sharing is no answer, for in material terms this can only mean less and less for more and more participants in a diminishing world of ever smaller parcels. No doubt this is an oversimplification and some will will object that creating wealth is precisely the object of an industrial society. More and more cars and washing machines for more and more people. Technology is forever running to keep up with the demand it creates. But in the city of the imagination, it is otherwise. Blake's spiritual fourfold London Eternal, with its mighty spires and domes of ivory and gold, belongs to all. How can this be? The riches of the imagination are not diminished by the number of participants, but multiplied. Whereas, if a hundred share a sum of money, each receives a hundredth part. If a hundred listen to a concert of music by Schubert or Bach, each receives the whole without diminishment. Like the light of the sun, the cathedrals of Chartres and Durham and Westminster Abbey, Botticelli's Primavera, Hamlet and Lear and Odysseus and Figaro inhabit the minds of multitudes without the least diminution. Nor is there envy and rivalry in a world where a shared love of some poet or painter or a childhood within the precincts of some abbey or cathedral forms a bond of mutual delight. The inhabitants of the Sancta Civitas are without number and its treasure is inexhaustible. And that, surely, is civilization, linking past and future and every race on earth. And do not the poor as well as the rich need beauty and have not other ages provided it? Blake supremely admired the builders of the great cities of art, Michelangelo and the other Florentine architects, who were, like the builders of our own Gothic cathedrals, working according to the true forms of the imagination, recognized and loved by all, because innate in all. The typical city of the materialist civilization may meet a certain standard of living or even of the American way of life with its superabundance of material goods. But what is notably lacking in cities built without the vision of the heavenly original is any trace of beauty where the soul can find peace and delight. There may be stupendous works in terms of size, productivity, efficiency, but the soul is starved. In the absence of beauty, the soul is always an exile. But in the Sancta Civitas, there are no exiles, for no matter whether it be at Rome, Athens, or some little timber-built town in New England, we feel instantly happy and at ease there. The expression... Examples, almost without thinking, temples, 
churches, mosques, the tombs of Christian or Islamic saints, temples of ancient Egypt or Mexico. For there is at the heart of all beauty and of the archetype inscribed within us by whose means we measure the beautiful, a sacred essence. Those works which most fully satisfy our thirst for beauty are always surely reflect some vision of the sacred, some spiritual aspiration. They cannot, so it seems, be created unless this be so. In the sanctuaries of all cultures we feel at home, we feel a sense of familiarity, whereas in the secular cities of the modern West we may be impressed but we feel inconsolably alien, nor will long familiarity make such cities home to our hearts. One has but to sit for an hour in the Piazza Navona to understand that the need for beauty is alike in rich and poor, young and old. All love that generous yet sheltering space, those abundant fountains, those sculptures expressing human energy and delight. The neighboring churches and monuments down to the stalls where simple crafts are displayed, little pottery figures of the shepherds and the angels, toys, sweets, all kinds of useless ephemeral things to delight us. The whole world feels at home there because Rome was built to delight mind and heart as well as to house the body. And there's plenty to buy to eat in the Piazza Navone also, coffee, all sorts of things. The sense is too satisfied. And is it not Italy's immemorial secret that rich and poor were never segregated, but share their cities to this day? A bronze boy and a tortoise on the brim of a fountain, a virgin and child on the wall, where all come and go, never without her tribute of little colored lights. Even in an age that can no longer attain the vision that raised cathedrals on whose sculptures we may read the entire story of man's creation and redemption, as on the portals of Chartres and Wells, we find glimpses and gleams of the Mundus Imaginaries. In Piccadilly Circus, statue of Eros and Peter Pan, archetype of the poor Eternus, or Rima, spirit of the wild. <clears throat> Do we not all need the bronze lions in Trafalgar Square, such as they are, and those deer that invite us into an imagined forest in Hyde Park, the fountains and dolphins and tortoises, no less than we need washing machines? Poetry is the house of the soul, I.A. Richard somewhere said, and W.B. Yeats, Blake's first editor and greatest disciple, understood our need to inhabit the world of the imagination always. He wrote of that inheritance of stories and of personages and of emotions passed on from generation to generation. I wished for a world where I could discover this tradition perpetually, he writes, and not in pictures and poems only, but in the tiles round the chimney piece and in the hangings that kept out the draught. We do not need Buslinan to distract us from distraction by distraction if the world we daily inhabit speaks to us continually of that invisible inner world. 
Even T.S. Eliot knew how occasional glimpses and gleams of beauty from that other world will sometimes smile in London's wasteland. This music crept by me upon the waters and along the strand up Queen Victoria Street. Oh, city, city, I can sometimes hear beside a public bar in Lower Thames Street the pleasant whining of a mandolin and a clatter and a chatter from within where fishmen lounge at noon where the walls of Magnus Martyr hold inexplicable splendor of Ionian white and gold. Is it not that... Is it not vital that a vision of the world of imagination all share be reflected in every time and place if we are to survive as civilized beings, that our cities be emblematic cities of the human archetypal universe in its wholeness? Thank you. There must be some questions. I suggest if we allow Blake to stand beside us on Waterloo Bridge and look towards the city, he would whisper one word in our ears Babel. And I suggest if we allow Blake to stand beside you in this room, he will whisper the building up of Jerusalem. That is what Terminus Academy is trying to do. And sometimes it's right to keep silence. Too many words in this modern life. Yes, I think Blake would think the girders and builders are at work in this. Uh, very dear institute of architecture where we are allowed to share the, uh, this lovely room with uh, the Prince of Wales's vision. He too wants to build a better city. He doesn't want to rule over Babylon. Mm. Where's your special part of London? Where's your special part of London? I hate the whole city. <laughs> My heart is not in London, but I'm living here because this is where the work is. I live in Chelsea, which is hollow. It is there are beautiful late Georgian houses, but it's money. You see, I couldn't afford to live in my house. I can't afford to leave it either because uh, the value of property, the chartered streets of London, the money, value has gone up and up and up and they're lived in by people who have, uh, on the whole, interior decorators to do up the houses while in the King's Road we have the drug scene and the unmarried mothers and boarded up shops and altogether it's, 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 it is not the holy city of Jerusalem. And I imagine other parts of London have similar or related problems. 
But we make our own city, and, and we make our own friends, and, and this is one of the, uh, the places that I love to come because I feel that the light is, the light is here for all the people who are using this. And there are other places, you know. The golden builders are in the humble streets of Lambeth, and they're like leaven sown throughout the city. They're not all in one place, like Buckingham Palace or Trafalgar Square. It's, it's something that permeates. I think that's what Blake meant by the golden builders. Wherever we are, we are well, the salt of the earth, or the leaven, whatever you like to say. I'm profoundly dark about this. Dark? Dark. Are you unhappy about the cities and their effect on our young? I don't... If one stopped to be unhappy, one could be very unhappy, but the best thing is to get on with the work of, of, of... Oh, who was it you, Rama, who said it, where there is darkness? Or it was someone else. Uh, don't moan about it. Light a candle. And I think that's good advice. Was it you? No. No, it must have been... Uh, it, was, it was to go, right? I could be wrong. It must have been Karen Singh. Who said this? Yes. Possibly quoting Tagore. Quoting Tagore. Tagore. Yes, he must have been quoting Tagore. Yes, that's it. Very good advice. Do you have a favourite city? A favourite city. I mean, is there a city that encapsulates for you what you? Oh, I about? love cities. Well, in in a way, you know, someone once said New York is, is city is like gin as compared with water. It's lovely. Uh, Dublin is beautiful because it's small. Uh, I love Rome, but I don't like some of the buildings there. The the great Victor Emmanuel building, it's, it's ruinous. But Rome is wonderful. I love it. I love it more than Florence <coughs> because it's alive. And I'm bound to say that uh, I love Delhi very much too, more because of the golden builders that are there than because of the very beautiful architecture. There's nothing, nothing more beautiful in any capital city than, than the Lachian's buildings in New Delhi. They're marvellous. I don't think the British meant to hand them over to the Indians quite so soon. But anyway, there they are. It's, it's a beautiful city, full of trees, full of flowers, but above all, people are beautiful. India is the, is the country of beautiful people, whether they're the poor or, or, or the rich, well, more the poor, they're just people, they're, I, one forgets living in the West that people can be beautiful, and that is, uh, to me, the lesson of India. You don't often see in the streets of London, you see too many faces in which there are marks of weakness, marks of woe. It's, uh, it's lovely when you see an illuminated face in which the, the light is, is kindled. It's, it's lovely. But very often you, you don't see that under our shadowy skies. Do you think the university will become the successor to the cathedral? The university will become. Replace the cathedral. Where is the centre now? Well, I hope Terminals Academy will replace the <laughs> will replace the university, <laughs> because it seems to me that the reason we, why we started the Terminals Academy is because 
The universities are not performing their task. The knowledge that they are purveying is not total knowledge. It is material knowledge, commercial knowledge, uh, a knowledge which enables people perhaps to earn money, but not the essential knowledge of, that man should know, not the wisdom of, of, of humanity as taught by uh, Plato, by Shakespeare, by uh, Rumi, by, um, oh, thousands of, well, not thousands, but uh, there are the great teachers of humanity. And in universities now, I'm afraid, and mine was Cambridge, and it's as bad as any, maybe worse than some, uh, you learn about things. You don't learn them. You learn about Plato, and you apply to him the latest ism, you know, and you read Karl Popper on Plato, and it's more important what Karl Popper has to say than what Plato has to say. Well, here, uh, we have been reading with John Michel. We have already read The Republic. We're starting on the laws later this term. We are learning from Plato, not about Plato. And so it is with all things. And here we have Ramu, who is not teaching us about the Upanishads. He is teaching the Upanishads. It's marvelous. It's something many of us have never experienced because there's been this separation by the materialist West of the observing mind and the thing observed. And in science, of course, objectivity is considered a virtue. But if you're talking about values and beauty, objectivity is not a virtue at all. It's a disaster. And that has befallen our universities, I'm sorry to say. I'm sure there are exceptions here and there. Uh, but when I, we started the review Temenos, how many years ago, Brian? Um, 12. 12, 12 years ago. Uh, we received many letters from people saying, and many of them in universities, I thought I was the only person who thought like this, and who, by raising the, flat, the standard, you find that people come to it. And uh, I'm afraid the universities are a wasteland just as much as the cathedrals are. But the cathedrals have this advantage. The eloquence of their structure, their proportions their sculptures, it still speaks. Like Ispahan, they remain emblematic. And the fact that they're not used for services in the same way as they were, um, or if they are, that they have this ghastly new, awful new translations of the, of the prayer book and the Bible, um, they still speak because of their beauty. It's, it can't be destroyed. And it, when I was at Cambridge, the beauty of the, the university was so beguiling that one would swallow any rubbish talk, <laughs> you know, because it must be true. Uh, we all have experienced that, I'm sure. Can I ask a supplementary? What about trouble? There's one Tenmouse Academy in London. There's one Blake Society in London. Almost every important function has got one place in London. How do we break out of this extraordinary monopoly which London has? Jerusalem is supposed to be everywhere, is it not? Yet we are stuck with this everlasting centricity. Well, mm. a capital city is somewhere where everything should be available. If that is not so in a capital city, uh, that is a disaster because uh, when we spoke of starting Temenos, it was Keith Critchlow particularly. So it must be in London because 
London is the, is the heart of this country, and if the knowledge is not available in London, it's no use it's being available at Dartington Hall or anything like that. I'm thinking of, of, of the Schumacher College that Satish Kumar, our friend, has started in, in the precincts of Dartington Hall. It's absolutely lovely. A beautiful country, a marvelous building, but I think Temenos is, is taking on the hard work by being here in London. Of course, uh, there have been suggestions that we should uh, spread our work. Someone suggested uh, that we should have a branch in uh, Birmingham and someone else in Bristol. It would be very nice, but we have to do what we can. And, and I'm not so sure that the provinces are altogether devoid of, of, of spiritual nourishment. I think often there are more. There's more going on in, in provincial towns, perhaps, than there is here. Lovely things. Festivals of music, all sorts of things. Kathleen, can I just point out to the gentleman that Dolganuza is being built at this very moment in an English provincial town? That is absolutely true. Brian Keeble, the only begetter and, <laughs> and sufferer from all the problems and difficulties of building Golganusa in, in Ipswich. That is where the Golganusa press functions. I can't see you, Brian, but I know you're there. <laughs> My publisher, and, and a, a very hard time he has in, in building Golganusa in Ipswich. But I don't think you'd find it any easier in London. <laughs> May I share a, a, a couple of thoughts, Kathleen, on the subject of the city? Uh, in India, in the 19th century, uh, Calcutta was the capital of the, uh, of the British Raj. And Calcutta was a city of great intellectual arrogance. But it is Calcutta that produced Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, who taught young people to sing and dance to the glory of God. And Delhi has always been a city of, of political arrogance. It's not only the capital of, of the British Raj in the 20th century, but of ancient uh, Indian kingdoms also. And it is there that the Saint Gandhi offered martyrdom. So there is something about the evil of cities which does produce the greatness of spirit. I'm glad to say this for the city. <laughs> I agree. I think it's rather like death is in relation to life. You see what I mean? You can't really appreciate life without death. And you can't appreciate the holy city without Babylon. Yes, that is very true. The city is both life and death. It's much clearer to see what you want if you have everything around you which is not what you want. Yes, indeed. It encourages you to build. Sometimes it can overwhelm you. When it gets too bad, like Canary Wharf or, or, or uh, oh, the, uh, what's it called, the, the theatre in London, it's so dreadful there. Yes, it's, it's, it can be too much and, and totally crush you, but, but it's quite true that uh, people are encouraged. And all the great people who've been in cities, Socrates said, you know, dreadful the state of Athens. And Balzac said, it's appalling the state of Paris. And, and, and uh, we say, and Blake said, it's absolutely disgraceful the state of London. I, I imagine you say the same sort of thing in Delhi, where it's just awful. And, and no doubt it is, too. It, it, all that is true, but, uh, but nevertheless, Looking back in retrospect, that wonderful things happened too. 
I think that this building will be remembered in the future. This is where, after all, the heir to the throne of England has set up his attempt, his light, his vision to to build Jerusalem in, in England's far from green and pleasant land and, and has invited us here. I think uh, this building, this very room, we're greatly privileged to be sitting here, uh, not only tonight but on many nights, seminars, things are happening. May I offer the great temerity being a university lecturer myself, a crumb of comfort, because I do believe there is evidence in the world, in England at large, that a subversive element has in fact taught Blake with your guidance and help over generations now. And I think the present revolt of the English teachers in the state schools, if they keep their heads, is proving that they're actually saying, no, English is not a matter of tests. It is not a matter of mechanical and application. It is a matter of the spirit and of the mystical. And I really do believe that this is where um, John Patton has made a serious mistake, because it's the English teachers who say, I teach literature because I love it, because Blake speaks to me, and I can do no other. And I really do feel that the work here adds to that work, and I think that the, the English teachers have an opportunity, and there seems evidence that the country, um, as it did with the miners, has been appalled at what we see Babylon attempting. And I think that Plato, Blake, Shakespeare, Milton, there have been a subversive group who have kept the light burning. What you say gives me great happiness because what we hope to do here is to send out waves, you know, which will be picked up. And of course you can't read Blake without being moved to the heart. Uh, whatever ism is being taught, I'm very glad you say, because I think that the, the revolution will come because people just won't have it. They want the true, uh, well, Blake said, the bread of sweet thought and the wine of delight. And uh, Blake is, of course, uh, one of the sacred books of the, of the New Age generation, of the hippies, and they may not know very much about uh, what Blake has written, they may not have got much beyond the marriage of heaven and hell, but the resonance is there, and Blake, who in his own lifetime had no public, he had a few disciples, but no public, I think now is, is reaching people, and the, the work goes on, the, the light goes on shining, it's wonderful. But, of course, we all owe whatever we have learnt to some marvellous teacher. It's a great profession. My father was a schoolmaster and so was my grandfather and, and my mother and all my aunts and everyone. And it is through, it is the teachers who transmit the knowledge <coughs> from one generation to another and there are always some in, in, in a school, in a college, in a university, there's always someone, isn't there, who, whom you say, well, I owe everything to so-and-so who taught me and and when that fails it all fails and of course there's the Blake Society too I ought to say it's it's quite active just now I believe isn't it are you doing things go well with you yes. good 
And there are. We're not the only light in the, in, in the darkness. I wouldn't claim that for a moment. I think it is, there is a pressure, pressure of change in the world which is going to change things. Um, if we collapsed, uh, someone else would take up the torch. It always happens. But it's a very dark time. And yet you are full of optimism. But your last book of poetry is wonderfully optimistic. But perhaps I misread you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm awfully glad you feel that. Because sometimes I feel it's all no good. But I think you see, either you succumb to the nihil, or you don't. And uh, oh, it's very hard to say. I'm not optimistic about the system of the world in which we live. I'm not optimistic about the capitalist society. I'm not optimistic about the, uh, uh, a world that lives by trading in guns and, and, and then turning on the people who use them and saying these dreadful Serbs and these dreadful um, Iraqis or whoever, they actually shoot one another. Well, who? provides the weapons. It's an absolutely indefensibly awful system and and we're destroying the environment. All that is true and yet unless we instead of moaning about the darkness light the candle, that's what I've tried to do in my poems and to try to find meaning in in what is um, unacceptable. It's um, well Dr. Gandhi's book, which I hope is on sale at the back or anywhere it's around, uh, is a platonic dialogue confronting the two kinds of nihil. One is the meaningless nihil, totally, that there is nothing. We are mere accidents in a meaningless mechanistic universe. And the other is the no thing of the mystics, the nirvana of the Lord Buddha, and the uh, fertile nothing of Brahman, from which issue marvelous universes, worlds, us, you know. And, and the fact that we're here at all, I think, speaks very well for the nihil. It can't be the negative nihil that, uh, that really has taken hold of our society and of which, of course, Francis Bacon is the great depictor of that total despair. But no, I, I, I'm not an optimist about any of this, the things in this world, but I am an optimist in... A, in, in one of his last pictures, Kathleen, Francis Baker, there, there is a, a sort of underground place where there is a man uh, representing all the, the, the grimness and, and despair of other. But he too is trying to switch on a light. I, 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 with a hand or a foot, I don't know. I think that's very touching. I, I <laughs> may like perpetual shine upon him. I, I don't know enough about the chaos theory, but it seems to me that we're being pushed towards the darkness, and then at one stage it's got to flip over into the light. Because that's how chaos theory is supposed to work. You get pushed and pushed and pushed until it just flips over into the opposite. So possibly what we're seeing is more and more of us becoming aware of the unbearable darkness until we go over and say, there it is, the light. 
a quantum change. Yes, Did you come to Karen Singh's lecture? Yeah. He, he was speaking of that. And it said, more or less, it's got to happen or else. And uh, I think we all know that. And, and we all know it in our hearts. And it only needs someone to speak the words. And we all feel in our hearts, ah, but we always have thought that because we did, because ourselves think so. It's, it's, and um, is it not so that after the Kali Yuga, it switches over to the Sat- Satya Yuga? Hopefully. <laughs> well, we hopefully. But that is the teaching, isn't it? It flips it's over, as you say. That, it's, it's, it's faith. Mm. We don't know. But, but one teacher I, I went to see in India, that was Maharaj Charan Singh. Uh, I was going on in my Western way about the Kali Yuga and how awful everything was. He said it's a personal matter. He said some people live in the Golden Age, some live in the Kali Yuga. Purely personal matter. <laughs> and then I said, yes, but we've never been able to destroy the whole world before. He said, would it matter so much? <laughs> so if you take a large enough view, you can be optimistic. <laughs> Bless you, Kathleen, for coming, sharing with us. You mentioned Piazza Navona, and that really brought so much to my mind. Above all the significance of the piazza, it's a symbol of the heart, where people come, talk, share, go to church, buy, eat, exchange. And in a deeply symbolical world, work hidden to the eyes of most moderns. In Donizetti's opera, The Desir d'Amore, the elixir of life, the selfhood, who is Belcore, says at one point, occuperò la piazza. I will occupy the piazza. And immediately, the chorus sings, il sol declina, the sun declines. God's sake, don't let us occupy the city, the piazza, but share it. Thank you, Catherine.